Well, welcome to this, um, this seminar on C.S. Lewis on Pride and Humility. It's great to have you here, and it's a great opportunity for us to learn some things about C.S. Lewis, but things that can really be very helpful to us in our relationship with God and our ministry in the world. So before we start... Uh, presentation, let's just take a moment and pray together, shall we? Our Father, we thank you for this day, for this week, the things we've been learning, the way you have been working in our minds and hearts. And Father, we thank you for your servant, C.S. Lewis, the marvelous work of grace you did in him and the way you used him in the world, and we pray that you will use this time that we have together to help us. Help us, O oh Lord, that we might embrace humility and forsake pride and live in a way that honors and glorifies you and enables you to use us and to fulfill your purposes for our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> what I thought I would do is just take a moment to look at some of the um, main outlines of the life of C.S. Lewis in case anyone is not uh, familiar with Lewis. How, how many of you have a pretty good grasp of Lewis's life, would you say? So you want to skip the slideshow then? Or? Okay. Okay, well... I'll just take you very briefly through this. Um, there are a few, a few slides that are um, helpful and uh, recite some information for you that you will have heard probably before. Uh, but you might find it useful in giving a talk somewhere. Uh, well, C.S. Lewis was, um, I, th I think he's probably the most famous Englishman that was ever born in Ireland. Um, he's publicly... I think uh, widely thought of as being an Englishman, but of course he was born in Belfast and uh, born November 29 of 1898. Um, the CS, as you probably know, stands for Clive Staples, uh, just the kind of name no one would want to have. And uh, when he was a, a, a young boy, he renamed himself. He did not like that name and uh, renamed himself Jack and continued with that the rest of his life. He had one brother, uh, Warren, and they were lifelong friends. Warren was three years older. Uh, his father was a solicitor, and his mother was a clergyman's daughter. Her father was an evangelical Anglican, if you can believe it. Um, his mother was a believer and um, part of the Church of Ireland and took him to church. He was trained in the faith. Unfortunately, he gave up his faith later uh, when he was a teenager. But his life uh, growing up uh, was, was a happy one, a happy childhood until almost the age of 10. And uh, what happened at, at that point in his life was that his mother uh, developed cancer and uh, she died. And it was a devastating experience uh, to C.S. Lewis. Let me get this going here. Here's, here's the home 
Lewis grew up in in Belfast called Little Lee. That's where he grew up, where his mother died. And um, he says this had just an extraordinarily profound impact on his life. He said, with my mother's death, all settled happiness disappeared from my life. There was to be much fun, many pleasures, many stabs of joy, but no more of the old security. It was sea and islands now. The great continent had shrunk, sunk like Atlantis. And you'll see this uh, at other points in Lewis's life, the impact that the death of his mother made. Probably has something to do with his atheism. Certainly we know that he prayed earnestly that God would heal her and God did not take her off the cross, as Gary was saying. And um, so that, that uh, was problematic for him and was one element in his atheism. Lewis fought in World War I. Uh, he was wounded in action, sent back to England to recuperate and did not return to combat. As you all know, he attended Oxford University and took three firsts, uh, which only a handful of people have done in 700 years, I've been told. Um, he became a tutor at Maudlin College, and you'll note that Maudlin is spelled M-A-G-D-A-L-E-N, so don't be thrown off uh, by the spelling. You have to follow the, the local custom here. Uh, he was elected a fellow and tutor in English language and literature, uh, served there at Maudlin for, for 20, 29 years. There's the college, and it's just down the way if you want to visit. It's a great tour to take. Um, I would encourage you to do it. It doesn't really take you all that long. Um, well, as I said, Lewis was an atheist, and uh, you know there are two types of atheists, practical atheists and theoretical atheists. Practical atheists are people who just live as if God didn't exist, and the theoretical are those that have developed reasons to justify their belief, and Lewis had reasons. He, was, he had a very well-thought-out, well-reasoned atheism. He wasn't just a knee-jerk type uh, atheist. Uh, and it continued on from uh, mid-teens until the age of 29 as an atheist. There he was in Maudlin College, uh, carrying on his tutoring, and um, he had an encounter. And he describes it this way, you must picture me alone in that room in Maudlin night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Well, that, that was his conversion to theism a belief in God, not Christianity. And we have many people in the church who are theists that haven't yet come uh, to Christianity. Um, well, that change for Lewis came in 1931, just two years later. He was helped to faith through a couple of friends and others besides, but primarily um, J.R.R. Tolkien and Hugo Dyson. 
And in a letter that Lewis wrote to his lifelong friend, Arthur Greaves, he says this, I have just passed on from believing in God to definitely believing in Christ, Christianity. My long night talk with Dyson and Tolkien had a great deal to do with it. And uh, that talk occurred in his rooms and then a walk along Addison, uh, it's actually a very late night uh, walk along this path you see here that runs beside uh, Maudlin called Addison's Walk. And um, I won't go into the details of the conversation. Uh, you can read about it in Surprised by Joy and elsewhere. But um, that had a profound impact, profound impact on him. And he goes on to say, I, I know very well when, but not how, hardly I hardly know the when the final step was taken. I was driven to Whipsnade Zoo on a sunny morning. Uh, his, he and his brother Warren uh, drove, I think it was in a um, motorbike, and he was in the sidecar. And he said, I was driven to Whipsnade Zoo, which is, is here in the area, and when we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. When we reached the zoo, I did. Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought nor in great emotion. Well, Lewis found in his faith the answers to life's questions and became a strong, committed disciple of Jesus and an apologist for biblical faith. I think we really misunderstand Lewis if we think of him, as many people do, in terms of a brilliant intellectual. Of course he was. But that isn't the thing that really explains C.S. Lewis. If you want to understand him, you have to see him as first and foremost not a brilliant intellectual, but a disciple of Jesus Christ, a radical disciple of Jesus, who happened to be a brilliant intellectual and lived out his calling uh, in the, uh, here at Oxford University and using what God had gifted him to do to advance the, the cause of Christ. Well, he began to write. He began to write, and um, let's see here if we can... There's his typewriter, and some wonderful things came from that typewriter. Actually, he'd, he'd, um, his writings fall into two categories, his, what you might call professional writing and uh, then his, his Christian and theological writing. And uh, the professional writings are still very uh, much appreciated. The Allegory of Love is uh, one you might uh, want to read, the preface to... Milton's Paradise Lost is considered a classic that's still used. And he wrote also English literature in the 16th century, excluding drama, which is uh, volume four, I believe, of the Oxford History of the English Language. But very, very prestigious publication. Uh, to write that book, he read everything, everything in English literature that was written in the 16th century. It took years in preparation. And as we all know, he wrote many other 
uh, Christian books, uh, probably the best known is the Narnia series, um, also the, the children's fantasy, the science fiction, uh, Paralandra, Mere Christianity, Screwtape Letters, uh, his biography, autobiography, Surprised by Joy, The Great Divorce, uh, Miracles, The Problem of Pain, Abolition of Man, and uh, Weight of Glory, for example. The Weight of Glory, actually, the sermon, it was, began as a sermon preached just across the street here. You'll notice the University of Church of St. Mary the Virgin. Uh, you should go and take a look there. That's where he preached the Weight of Glory sermon. Um, John Wesley preached there. Cranmer was tried there. And uh, If you want the, one of the best shots in Oxford of the city, go up into the bell tower, up to the very top. They'll charge you one pound. And uh, you, can get, you can look down on the, on the quads of different colleges. You can get a great uh, um, photo from up there. Well, Lewis paid a very high price to follow Jesus at Oxford University. You might think it... Uh, Maybe that never occurred to you, but the cost of discipleship for Lewis was, was, um, was very high. He was um, hated by many on the faculty. And twice he was passed over for a professorship. He was never made a professor. He was always tutor. Tutor in English language and literature. His Christian faith had a lot to do with the hatred and animosity, although that wasn't the only reason. Uh, there uh, are other reasons too, but we don't have time to go into that right now. Uh, in 1954, uh, Cambridge University saw their opportunity, and uh, they offered Lewis a chair in medieval and Renaissance literature, and he taught there from 54 to 63. But he lived here in Oxford. Uh, he loved Oxford, and um, he lived here in this place. You can't see all of it, but that gives you a little feel for the kilns. Anyone been out there for the tour? Some of you have? Good. Um, it's not at all now like it was in those days. It's built up. It's, it's just squeezed in and surrounded by a subdivision. There's still a little bit of uh, the flavor of the pond and whatnot. Um, but he lived here many years and um, commuted back. He went, he went to... Oxford, or to Cambridge during the week and then would commute back here. Um, Lewis was a bachelor until late in life and he married then uh, Joy Davidman Gresham and she was an extraordinary woman by any measure. Um, it's been said that she was his intellectual equal and if you read some of the things she's written you'll see uh, why. Um, they had a very short but happy marriage, and she died in 1960 of cancer, which had an unsettling effect on his faith. As we were hearing from Gary, things like this, these powerful emotional experiences can affect our faith, and so it was with Lewis, but he recovered from it, and you can, uh, you can read uh, some of his thoughts and experience in A Grief Observed. It's well worth uh, looking at. Well, C.S. Lewis attended, he, was, he attended um, Trinity Parish in Headington Quarry all the years that he was a believer. Uh, it wasn't the best place in town, probably. Uh, 
but it was his parish church, and he went. He was a faithful Anglican. He said he was, he was neither high nor low particularly. He was just sort of somewhere in the middle. Uh, but he was, he was faithful, faithful in church. He hadn't yet discovered consumer Christianity. He would be absolutely dumbfounded at the way we do things today. C.S. Lewis died in 1963, same day as John Kennedy, and interestingly, Aldous Huxley. He's buried in the churchyard. Here's a, here's a, a picture of Lewis uh, later in his life, and the way Lewis describes himself is um, he, he wrote to, I think it, it was um, maybe a, a young person, I'm tall, fat, rather bald, red-faced, double-chinned, black-haired, have a deep voice, and wear glasses for reading. And there he is, and I think he's standing probably, probably in his rooms at either Cambridge or Maudlin. It's, that's not the kilns, I can tell you. Well, he is buried in the churchyard. There's the gravestone. He and his brother and, uh, and Joy are there. Lewis said this, and I think it, it um, is uh, an important statement to take to heart that says a lot about Lewis and his view of life and what happened to him. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. And he lived his life according to that. To him, it was of infinite importance. Okay, um, just a very brief um, look at the life of C.S. Lewis. Now let's, um, let's see if we can shift gears and look at this uh, question of pride and humility. C.S. Lewis called pride the great sin. You may remember that if you have uh, read Mere Christianity. It's in Book 3, Chapter 8, a chapter entitled The Great Sin. Why would it be that he would call Pride, the great sin. It doesn't seem all that bad these days, does it? It's rarely preached on, rarely taught in the church. I, I don't know. How many, have you heard of sermons or teachings on that lately? I, I don't know what your experience is. I, I haven't uh, personally, and the people that I work with and teach back in Washington, we rarely hear it from the pulpit. Um, but Lewis considered it the great sin. Why? Well, Several reasons probably contributed to that. Uh, one thing, of course, was one of his degrees was um, in ancient Greek history and literature and philosophy, and so he certainly encountered it in the Greek tragedies where you see uh, everywhere the terribly destructive effects of hubris on human life. So he, certainly he would have encountered it there even before he became a believer. But more than that, I think as uh, he read 
great literature, he saw it. And certainly in reading the great moral and spiritual theologians of the church, he would have discovered that. You see this uh, emerging very early with the Desert Fathers. Uh, both Augustine and Aquinas taught that pride was the essence of sin. Gregory the Great said pride is the mother and queen of all vices. Luther said pride is the head, life, and very nature of all sin. And so Calvin, along the same lines, all the great moral and spiritual theologians of the history of the church have seen the same thing. Lewis would be able to then say to us that according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. I'm going to give you some PowerPoint slides, but let me tell you, don't pay more attention to the lecture and don't try to write down uh, the quotes because you'll get them over here in a handout, but we'll just sort of run through them uh, as we uh, progress here. Well, Lewis also saw the tremendous evil influence just as he looked at the world. And he could say this, the Christians are right. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. That's a very, very strong statement, isn't it? You think about that. Pride has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. But to be more personal, Lewis had a problem with pride himself. One friendly biographer recently said, Jack Lewis in his middle teens was a thoroughly obnoxious, arrogant, condescending intellectual prig. Now, we don't like to hear things like that said of our patron saint, do we? Um, but a lot of our hagiography is um, defective. And uh, Lewis struggled with this and later in life. I mean, it's not something that he solved, and uh, none of us solve the problem of pride simply through being converted. That's the point where we begin to discover it, I think, a little more clearly. Uh, he said later in life, of himself. I wish I had got a bit further with humility myself. If I had, I probably could tell you a bit more about the relief, the comfort of taking off the fancy dress, getting rid of the false self with all its look at me and aren't I a good boy, and all its posing and posturing. So he struggled with it. But ultimately, I think Lewis calls pride the great sin because that's what the scripture teaches uh, from Genesis to Revelation. And Lewis was a man of the Scripture. He was immersed in the Scripture. And he read, he read uh, the New Testament in original Greek. Um, and he had a photographic memory. I don't know. Do, do you know about that? I'll tell you a little story. Uh, this was uh, 
well known of Lewis among his friends, uh, and he considered it a problem, personal problem to him, because he could never forget anything. And uh, he had a friend, o friend over um, at the kilns one time, and he was talking about this, and he said, well, pick any book off the shelf. And so the man picked a book, and he said, open it to any page. And so he just opened it, and he said, start reading. And he started reading, and then Lewis picked up the next paragraph and just continued on verbatim. Um, well, now you know why C.S. Lewis was C.S. Lewis. Um, he had a phenomenal memory, and he had the scripture uh, really immersing, immersed. Um, his life was saturated with scripture, and there you certainly see this whole issue of pride. Well, what is the nature of pride? What are we talking about when we use this word? And some of us are feeling uneasy because we know that we, you know, we say, well, I'm proud of this and proud of that. And there is a good kind of pride. The Bible acknowledges that. And that's not what we're talking about here this afternoon. There's a good kind of pride that where you... Uh, take satisfaction in things well done, or you, your child does well at soccer, and you, you say, well, I'm really proud of, of her. Well, we're not talking about that type of thing. Or um, an attitude of warmth and admiration for somebody, or, or just a you know, personal appreciation for yourself doing a job well. You know, I'm proud of myself for, for doing that well. That's not what we're talking about here. Um, and Lewis certainly makes the distinction. The type of pride, though, that, that is of very serious concern, uh, Lewis describes this way. What I want you to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It is competitive by its very nature while the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else had the same the equally rich or clever or good-looking, uh, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is in the comparison. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Nearly all those evils in the world which people put down to greed or selfishness are really far more the result of pride. It is pride, the wish to be richer than some other rich man, and still more the wish for power, for of course power is what pride really enjoys. There's nothing that makes a man feel so superior to others as being able to move them about like toy soldiers. Uh, if I'm a proud man, then the, as long as there is one man in the whole world more powerful or richer or cleverer than I, he is my rival and my enemy. Have you ever thought of pride like that, of being essentially competitive. It really is. And, and Lewis, Lewis says that 
you know, much of our problem in the world is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. So we're all pride addicts competing with one another. Well, pride is spiritual cancer. It's a very good way of thinking about it. Pride, Lewis says, is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. Pride has degrees, and there is a particularly bad type of pride, worse than, worse than the ordinary pride. Lewis says that it's the real black diabolical pride where you look down on others so much that you do not care what they think of you. It's this attitude of contempt and disdain toward other people. You could easily imagine that in uh, some of the aristocrats or the British royals, but it's not confined to them. If we look at our own hearts, we may find that there are people that we look at like that. But there's something else. There's yet another type of pride. And it's spiritual pride. And this is something that uh, believers seem to have no awareness of uh, these days. Lewis says, whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on not by God, but by the devil. It's not just Lewis that says this. Uh, you can find it, um, Jonathan Edwards, for example, if you'd like to have a thorough discussion of this whole issue of spiritual pride is, is very helpful. And um, you can find, if you, if you Google Jonathan Edwards and spiritual pride, you'll come up with uh, the text of a sermon he did on this subject, which is very enlightening and convicting uh, at the same time and will help you understand why churches and revival movements and uh, all kinds of uh, works of God get, uh, as, as Edwards would say, clogged up with smoke from the bottomless pit. Uh, is the way he describes the effects of pride. Um, but it's something we do struggle with, and particularly when we are uh, critiquing, uh, as has happened uh, quite often in recent decades, critiquing people uh, in public for their sins. The Christians in the U.S. now are, if you look at the research, what, what do the non-believers typically say? Well, very critical, censorious people. Um, it's, it's a sad story, uh, really, what other, how other people perceive evangelical Christians. Uh, and a lot of it comes, it's our own doing. We shoot ourselves in the foot by our vociferous public pronouncements against this, that, and the other uh, type of sin. And people, you know, it's, it's, it's a little strange, isn't it? What are sinners to do but sin? And then they're being severely chastised because they're doing this, that, or the other thing instead of... Um, being related to in a, a way of grace that could help them find the power to be different. 
Well, spiritual pride. And there may be a slight application here related to our, our studies this week. Apologetics can be influenced by spiritual pride. Have you thought about that? What about the competition with the non-believer? Competition and debate. The argument, the need to win. Showing off intellectually to exalt ourselves. Now, these are some of the things we need to be careful of because we can easily fall into it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Now, he was not opposed to knowledge. He was one of the most brilliant men of his day. He had enormous knowledge. But it's very easy if you don't pursue humility and seek to humble yourself for knowledge to puff you up, to feed pride. And certainly you see that around Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard, Princeton, uh, on and on you can go. There's so many, well, as Thomas Akempis put it, the, the learned are well pleased uh, to be thought um, brilliant, you know. And uh, so there's a particular danger that comes in there with, uh, with a lot of uh, learning and certainly learning apologetics. You learn these skills, these tools, how to, how to out-argue other people. Um, so, but that, you can do that and you can win the argument and lose the person. And that's the great danger. We have to be careful of, of that. And Lewis avoided that. If you look at the way he wrote. Many people, I can tell you, many people have told me they came to Christ through reading Mere Christianity. Lewis invites you in and reasons with you and doesn't look down on you. Uh, he takes an approach of humility. And we need to learn to do the same thing. Uh, let me give you an example. I think we have time to do this. An example out of uh, Lewis's writings. And you'll find some examples like this. There, this is not the only one. This is maybe a very graphic example, though. Um, a description of a proud figure. This is drawn from the magician's nephew. It's Queen Jadis. You remember Queen Jadis? Yeah, okay. Good for you. Well, here is, here is uh, a little excerpt from the magician's nephew. And this is an encounter that Diggory and Polly have their first encounter with Queen Jadis. Uh, do read the book if you haven't and get the full context. The queen let go of his hand and raised her arm. She drew herself up to her full height and stood rigid. Then she said something which they couldn't understand, but it sounded horrid, and made an action as if she were throwing something toward the doors. Those high and heavy doors trembled for a second as, they were made of, as if they were made of silk and then crumbled away till there was nothing left of them but a heap of dust on the threshold. Woo, whistled Greg Diggory. Has your master magician, your uncle, power like mine, asked the queen. Firmly seizing Diggory's hand again, she said, I shall know later. In the meantime, remember what you have seen. This is what happens to things and to people who stand in my way. 
Much more light than they had yet seen in that country was pouring in through the now empty doorway. And when the queen led them out through it, they were not surprised to find themselves in open air. The wind that blew in their faces was cold, yet somehow stale. They were looking from a high terrace, and there was a great landscape spread out below them. Low down near the horizon hung a great red sun, far bigger than our sun. Diggory felt at once that it was also older than ours, a sun near the end of its life, weary of looking down upon that world. To the left of the sun and higher up was a single star, big and bright. Those were the only two things to be seen in that dark sky. They made a dismal group. And on the earth in every direction, as far as the eye could reach, there spread a vast city in which there was no living thing to be seen. And all the temples, towers, palaces, pyramids, and bridges cast long, disastrous-looking shadows in the light of that withered sun. Once a great river had flowed through the city, but the water had long since vanished, and now it was only a wide ditch of gray dust. Look well on that which no eyes will ever see again, said the queen. Such was Charn, that great city, the city of the king of kings, the wonder of the world perhaps of all worlds. Does your uncle rule any city as great as this, boy? No, said Diggory. He was going to explain that Uncle Andrew didn't rule any cities, but the, king, the queen went on. It is silent now, but I have stood here when the whole air was full of the noises of charn, the trampling of feet, the creaking of wheels, the cracking of the whips, and the groaning of slaves, the thundering of chariots, and the sacrificial drums beating in the temples. I have stood here, but that was near the end, when the roar of battle went up from every street and the river of Charn ran red. She paused and added, All in one moment, one woman blotted it out forever. Who? said Diggory in a faint voice. But he had already guessed the answer. I, said the queen, I, Jadis, the last queen, the queen of the world. The two children stood silent, shivering in the cold wind. It was my sister's fault, said the queen. She drove me to it. May the curse of all the powers rest on her forever. At any moment I was ready to make peace, yes, and to spare her life too, if only she would yield me the throne. But she would not. Her pride has destroyed the whole world. Even after the war had begun, there was a solemn promise that neither side would use magic. But when she broke her promise, what could I do? Fool, as if she did not know that I had more magic than she. She even knew that I had the secret of the deplorable word. Did she think, she always was a weakling, that I would not use it? What was it, said Diggory? Well, that was the secret of secrets, said Queen Jadis. It had long been known to the great kings of our race that there was a word which, if spoken with the proper ceremonies, would destroy all living things except the one who spoke it. But the ancient kings were weak and soft-hearted and bound themselves and all who should come after them with great oaths never even to seek after the knowledge of that word. But I learned it in a secret place and paid a high price to learn it. I did not use it until she forced me to, 
I fought to overcome her by every other means. I poured out the blood of my armies like water. Beast, muttered Polly. The last great battle, said the queen, raged for three days here in Charn itself. For three days I looked down upon it from this very spot. I did not use my power till the last of my soldiers had fallen and the accursed woman, my sister, at the head of her rebels, was halfway up those great stairs that lead up from the city to the terrace. Then I waited till we were so close that we could see one another's faces. She flashed her horrible, wicked eyes upon me and said, Victory! Yes, I said, victory, but not yours. Then I spoke the deplorable word. A moment later, I was the only living thing beneath the sun. But the people gasped, Diggory. What people, boy? said the queen. All the ordinary people, said Polly, who'd never done you any harm, and the women, and the children, and the animals. Don't you understand, said the queen? I was the queen. They were my people. What else were they there for but to do my will? It was rather hard luck on them all the same, she said. I had forgotten that you are only a common boy. How should you understand reasons of state? You must learn, child, that what would be wrong for you or for any of the common people is not wrong for a great queen such as I. The weight of the world is upon our shoulders. We must be freed from all rules. Ours is a high and lonely destiny. Well, that's a very chilling description of a life that is rooted in pride, arrogance. It, uh, it's very graphic, isn't it? And you'll find as you read through uh, the Narnia series that there are uh, some very interesting spiritual lessons in there that uh, uh, can benefit adults as well as... Um, Children, well, what are some of the effects of pride? I think you could look at two things, um, alienation from God and alienation from other people, which covers uh, most of the waterfront, doesn't it? Lewis says pride always means enmity. It is enmity, and not only enmity between man and man, but enmity between man and God what the practical consequences are. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. Pride blocks our knowing of God. Sometimes if we find that we have a problem in our lives, really getting close to God and knowing God, the cause can be rooted right there in pride in our lives. There's a passage in Hebrews which says God knows the proud from afar. And if we feel distant to God, it could very well be that the proverb is, applies to us. Well, it hinders relationships with other people. And again, Lewis puts his finger on it. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, no fault which we ourselves are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it, 
in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Have you ever noticed that? But it, it does uh, create division. It, uh, pride makes us unpopular, and we don't like to be around pr pride people or proud people. Pride also leads to disgrace. And um, I think I will omit a story about how that led to the disgrace of a very prominent person in Washington, D.C. several years ago. Um, let's get to um, personal cases, shall we? Am I proud? That's the question that we should all ponder. I know that I know that I am personally, and have struggled with this for a long, long time, and feel like I make progress, and then find that I lose ground, and then have to come back and go at it again. Um, oh, that we could have uh, complete deliverance from it. And I think you can make headway, of course, and I know that I have, but certainly I would not uh, lay claim to being a humble person. Uh, there can be no surer proof of a confirmed pride than the belief that one is sufficiently humble. So you may want to take that and ponder it a little bit if you think, well, this really doesn't apply a lot to me. I know there are proud people around, but this doesn't really seem to be my issue. Um, ponder that. Lewis says, in fact, if you want to know how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself this question. How much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or shove in their oar, or patronize me, or show off. Does that get under your skin? Well, it can be, it can be something of an index of, of uh, pride. Our inner response to proud people is an index of our own pride. The more they bother us, the more pride we likely have within us. So it's helpful to do self-examination. Are you easily offended? Competitive toward others? Critical of others? That's a um, sure sign right there. A critical, judgmental spirit is uh, a good sign of pride. Do you look down on other people who are not as smart or successful as you are? The, the interesting thing, to, to understand pride, you could do something like this. If we're all here on level ground and then we step up here, then we're towering over others, right? Any area in your life where you have um, a special distinction, can become the greeting, breeding ground for pride. It's very easy. So if you're very smart, it's easy to become proud of your intelligence. If you're well-educated, you have your DPhil from Oxford or whatever, it's easy to look down on other people who 
uh, went to some pedestrian school somewhere unheard of, you know. Uh, if you've been successful in business, you've made a lot of money or whatever, you're a step higher than many people. And on and on it can go. It, I mean, it, uh, personal appearance, if you're one of the beautiful people, you know, then you, you look down on others who aren't, uh, aren't there. And certainly there are many of us. The good news on that one is that those of us who are ugly are in the majority. <laughs> um, but uh, you see how it works. And we each, have, we each have our own way of constructing that, don't we? You know? Maybe that you keep house better than your sister or the people in your family. Yours is neat and tidy, and theirs is, uh, is all a mess. I mean, just an infinite number of ways that we can get a step up on other people. And we can turn these things into areas of pride. And, of course, we don't do it consciously. It just sort of happens. It's the, the movements and motions of pride within us. It's the working of sin. Now, you may be still wondering if, you're, if you have any problems with pride. And I want to give you, if all else fails, here's something that's sure to succeed. If you're married, ask your spouse. <laughs> if you're single, ask your parents. That should help. Well, let's move on to humility, uh, where life is much more pleasant. <laughs> We've been contemplating the, uh, some of the worst stuff there is. C.S. Lewis, as we saw at the beginning of this lecture, saw humility as the foundation of the moral life. Foundation of the moral life. Um, and, you know, he's really following a long line of thinking. Augustine, for example, he was in complete sympathy. Augustine said, Humility is the foundation of all the other virtues. Hence, in the soul which, in which this virtue does not exist, there cannot be other virtue except in mere appearance. So if humility is not the foundation in our lives, then we can be deceiving ourselves if we uh, are moral in many ways, and yet... That grows on a foundation of, uh, of pride. So humility is the foundation. Uh, Lewis believed that, as did uh, all the great moral and spiritual theologians and philosophers. What is humility? Well, biblically, pride is, if you look at the Hebrew and Greek words, um, the underlying idea is very simple. It's a lifting up, lifting up of yourself, self-exaltation. Self-glorification, that's what pride is. And what is humility? But simply the reverse, Greek and Hebrew words, the lowering of oneself, one's mind, one's attitude, one's behavior. Self-abasement, you might say. This is not, as Lewis pointed out, a matter of a low opinion of one's talents or character, but rather it is self-forgetfulness. Now, I will introduce John Wesley here. He, he, he says this in a very good, crisp, clear way. 
uh, in describing humility, he says, humility is a right judgment of ourselves which cleanses our minds from those high conceits of our own perfections and from the in undue opinions of our own abilities and attainments. Let's see if we have him. Why is humility so important? Well, a proud person, as we've seen, cannot know God, cannot grow in grace. It's a sad story. You can be in a good, solid, orthodox church all your life, hearing the truth week after week, leading Bible studies. You can even be the pastor of that church. You can be a theologian. And still not really be growing in grace. You can grow in knowledge. You can grow in uh, competence, expertise in teaching, communicating, uh, whatnot, and managing sin so that uh, we keep up appearances, but still not really grow in grace. And that's why humility is so important. And when, as we humble ourselves, then we grow. You cannot really love others with agape love, without humility. Humility is at the heart of Christ-like character, which we are called to develop. That's our destiny, you know. If we don't know Christ, God's number one agenda for us is to come to saving faith, to a, a true repentance and a living faith in Jesus Christ. Once we've done that, His agenda for us is to be conform to the likeness of his son. But that cannot happen apart from humbling ourselves because Jesus, if you look at him, if you think about the life of Jesus, what was it? Isaiah 53 begins a suffering servant, one who humbled himself. Philippians chapter 2. He laid aside his glory and took on human flesh, became obedient even to death on a cross. And then, as he lowered himself, God exalted him. So that's what we're called to. We're called to become more and more like Jesus as long as we're in this world, and it's impossible to do that apart from humility. And of course, there is one other incentive, and that is a theme that runs all through the Bible. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled by God. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. God has a commitment to humble the proud. And those who lift up and exalt themselves, God will humble them in due course. And you certainly see this in Scripture, and you see it all through life. If you understand what's going on, you can see it in the people and nations and leaders. Oh, a great example would be Saddam. You remember seeing Saddam prancing around a few years back on television and having his rifle in his arm, you know, and uh, his little cap on his head and standing up there ruling over the nation, all of that sort of thing. Um, just totally self-absorbed, consumed with pride. And he was humbled. Now, that's not a statement to say that the way he got humbled was necessarily right or the best or anything else. God uses some interesting ways to humble people. But um, 
It happens throughout life at every level. What is a humble person like? Has anybody ever read David Copperfield? You'll know the name of Uriah Heep. That's not humility. Or if you know someone with a low self-image, very quiet and shy and uh, will hardly make a noise, that's not humility either. Lewis uh, is, is really helpful to us um, in describing it. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably you will think about him. All you'll think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in you, what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will be thinking, not be thinking about himself at all. And uh, that, I think, gets to the heart of it, this business of, of lowering ourselves um, to where we have a sober estimate of ourselves and then can be freed up to think about other people and to focus on God. So, and how do we develop humility? That's, um, uh, I think, a relevant question at this point. And Lewis tells us that his advice would be that the first step is to realize that one is proud. He says that's a biggish step, too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. So that's the first step for us, really, is to become aware of the problem. And I would suggest that a helpful way to do that is not really morbid introspection. Pride is the type of thing, it's, it's, you know, if you have a problem with lust, for example, you know you have it, right? It's not something that's mysterious. Or if you have a problem with greed, you know, you're thinking all the time, I need that bigger house, I need that nicer car, I need the place at the ocean. And what's good is a place at the ocean without a boat? And on and on it goes, you know, and you can, you can see evidences in your life. Pride is not that way. If you have pride, you, you generally don't recognize it. Unless it's just at an outrageous level. And so what we need is the help of the Holy Spirit. You see David in Psalm 139 praying that God would search him says, search me, O Lord. Try my thoughts. Show me if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We need the searching, the inner searching of the Holy Spirit to reveal sin. That's one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to reveal sin in our lives. And so that's the first step if we want to get rid of pride. Now, there's a second step that Lewis would commend to us. The second step is to make a serious step toward practicing the Christian virtues. A week is not enough. 
Now, we're talking about, if you want theological language, mortification, mortifying sin, trying to put to death sin. I'll quote the vice-chancellor of Oxford University. He said, if you do not kill sin, sin will kill you. John Owen, about 400 years ago. Well, that's what we have to do. We have to make a serious effort at killing sin in our lives, and particularly with pride. Scripture calls us to this vigorous warfare. And as we try to do it, what we discover is, oh my, this isn't as easy as I thought. <laughs> what we discover is that some of these things are very deeply entrenched in our lives. And we have to work at them again and again and again. And sometimes we, we come to a point of desperation as we fail and fail and fail. And, you know, we renew our, you know, God, I'll never do it again. And then we find ourselves falling back. And all of this should bring us more and more to a place of desperation, crying out to God for the Holy Spirit to do whatever it takes to deliver us from whatever sin it happens to be. Pride in this case we're talking about. But we need an inner working of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 13, he encapsulates this. He said, if by the Spirit we put to death the works of the body, we shall live. It's, you have to have those two things working together. The Holy Spirit will give us the power. We have to be engaged and committed to doing everything that we can to put, put sin to death. But ultimately, all of our efforts will be to no avail, as we were hearing from Alistair about Pelagius. Uh, all the self-discipline and everything you can apply needs to be applied. But you can be absolutely 100% sure that it will not ultimately do any good except maybe the outward change of life. It won't change the heart unless the Holy Spirit is working in and through those things to bring that transformation. And so what Lewis wants us to do is to recognize the problem and then attack it, to get in there and start working on it. And then as we do, we will discover uh, more and more our need for God's grace to help us uh, to bring that transformation. Pray for God to show you when, where, and how to humble yourself. The Bible tells us again and again to humble ourselves. There are two ways to get humility. And you get to choose which one you'd like. So you can, you can either humble yourself or you can let God do it for you. And I have had it both ways. And I can tell you, humbling yourself is a far better approach. Okay, so the idea then is really to lower one's view of oneself to that which is appropriate. And Paul tells us this in the 12th chapter of Romans. He says, By the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to, but rather think of yourself with a sober judgment. Keep a sober estimate of yourself. That's what we need. Lewis worked at that. He said, God has been very good to me. He has allowed my work to reach more people than I would have dared to hope. But I always remember that he can preach through any instrument. Balaam's ass is the example I keep in mind. 
he had to work at this. And of course he did, as famous as he was, you know? Fertile ground for pride to grow. And so he had to keep reminding himself to try to maintain a sober estimate of himself. It's helpful to remind ourselves of where our gifts and abilities ultimately come from. Paul uh, tells us this in the fourth chapter of 1 Corinthians. Uh, the, who makes you to differ from anyone else? What makes you special? It's all the grace of God poured out on our lives. Well, Lewis continued to struggle all through his life. Um, even, even later, there's an interesting story from his taxi driver. Now, Lewis never learned to drive a car. Never learned to drive a car. And so he walked, or he took the train, or around town if it was too far. He had a taxi driver that he would call, Clifford Morris. And uh, Clifford Morris has been interviewed about Lewis, and he tells the story of how after one of Lewis's brilliant public addresses, he confided uh, to Morris that he was having problems with pride and began to think, what a jolly, fine, and clever fellow Jack Lewis was. And then he said, as that thought entered his mind, he had to get down on his knees and pray to kill the deadly sin of pride. Even in later life, this, this kind of thing emerged. I think we need to... Let's see, where do we go? Um, we need to be aware, too, of the devil's work at stirring up pride within our lives. Uh, here we have a selection from... Screwtape Letters, I believe, where Screwtape is being advised by Wormwood of how to snare a soul, catch him, catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, by golly, I'm being humble. And almost immediately pride at his own humility will appear. Now, I found that. I found that in my experience. I would work on pride and make some headway. And then somebody comes along and they say, Tom, you're such a humble guy. <laughs> and I could just feel myself sliding back down. <laughs> oh my, here we go again. So it's kind of comical now. But um, anyway, the devil has ways of cultivating this. And Lewis says that pride... Pride is not something that comes from the animal nature, like lust, for example, or anger. It come, it's a spiritual sin. It comes really from hell. It comes from the devil, who's the father of it. Well, a concluding word of encouragement. Uh, Lewis saw pride as being like an onion. You peel away one layer only to find another beneath it. And certainly that's been uh, the experience of uh, many of us in this room, I'm sure. Um, but if we keep at it, you know what will happen if you keep on peeling away layers of an onion? It goes from being larger to being smaller. You may not be able to completely get rid of it entirely, but you can certainly uh, make an enormous difference on how much of it is there. A lot of tears. That's good, Becca. A lot of tears. A final thought here. 
from Archbishop Fenelon, humility is not a grace that can be acquired in a few months. It's the work of a lifetime. So, C.S. Lewis on pride and humility with thoughts from random, random souls uh, as well. We have uh, a few minutes left. For, uh, oh, by the way, very important thing. If you would like to really look into this more, the best book there is on this subject um, in English, I would say for us, would be a book written by Andrew Murray entitled Humility. That's, that's it, just Humility by Andrew Murray. You could look at other books, uh, Benedict's Rules of Humility, Jeremy Taylor on how to develop humility and others, but um, Andrew Murray's book is absolutely uh, priceless, and I've used it in our curriculum for 10 years, 9 years, or whatever, and uh, it has a greater impact on people than I think any other book that we use in the entire curriculum, uh, from you know, high theology and apologetics and everything else. That's the one that seems to most impact people. So if you felt this is something you need to uh, deal with, well, I would encourage you to do that. And then, then there's an article, there's a handout that um, um, Nathan will give to you. Uh, it has the quotes that appeared on the uh, screen, and then it has an article by David Henderson, Here Comes the Pride. And it's a very, very good article. Okay, questions, why don't we do, um, Simon, can you bring up the lights for us? And, um, and then we'll see if we have a question or two about this. Maybe that I've completely misjudged uh, the audience and you have this all, all taken care of. Now, I, I can't promise you that I have uh, all the answers on this. Still learning myself. Stacy, you were first. You'll have a hard question. I shouldn't have, I should have ignored you. Go ahead. <laughs> Um, I've heard the argument that pride is kind of an evolutionary necessity, that um, it's something that you see in the animal kingdom, that it is an animal um, instinct. I was just wondering, what do you think Lewis would say to that argument? Um, somebody brought that up. Well, that's a good question. Um, Probably he would um, he would shift the focus back to human responsibility, um, and he believed very much in that. He he would not allow he would not allow us to be taken off the hook by genes. Um, uh, the whole genetic thing can be a, um, it, it can be disorienting, but um, if you look at if you think about the fall as having impacted every aspect of a human being, then it's not difficult to imagine that it can, you know, affect all kinds of things. Throw all the settings wrong. It's like having your computer uh, hit with a uh, lightning or something, and it throws all the settings off, and nothing seems to be working right. And you get this in the genetic coding and everything else. But the final analysis, I think, is that 
the end of the day, we are responsible and we are accountable for the choices we make. And we make our choices and our choices make us. Think about that. Um, read the story of Dorian Gray. The, the picture of Dorian Gray is a great illustration. Ravi loves this. Uh, it will show you in a very graphic and chilling way the consequences of our choices. <laughs> behind the last question it's a matter of um, understanding the nature of, of human being if you have a purely mechanistic outlook and see human behavior in mechanistic terms then you see pride as being part of a necessary preservation of the individual particularly if you follow Dawkins. And this is fighting for your own corner. But of course, once you acknowledge the spiritual nature of man, then you're in a completely different set of presuppositions. And I think this is where the real lines are drawn between those who uh, are fierce and had some transcendental view and those who have a purely mechanistic one. I think that's true. Oh, absolutely. Um, I was just wondering, um, how is, you, you were discussing sort of um, uh, the manner in which people need to um, sort of hunger after humility in order to sort of attain some and to get away from pride. Um, I was just wondering practically... Um, how do you suggest this? Because the only thing that I can think of, in, in, certainly in terms of my life, is actually asking God to, to make me humble. Um, and it's something which I've, I've addressed just before coming here. I've been reading a lot of the Lewis that you were talking about. And um, I think it's probably the most difficult thing I've encountered uh, in my entire life. I was just wondering if you might be able to sort of give me some advice. Well... I think going back to what I was saying just at the close, that it's important. We'll never be able to deal with it apart from God's help. And it's important to ask the Lord to give us uh, the conviction we need, the clarity to see the patterns of pride and the roots of pride in our own lives. And um, it's important to ask for grace to overcome that and then to take seriously um, what the scripture says to humble ourselves to look for opportunities to humble ourselves um, practical things now we can deal with um, um, outward behaviors and we can begin to work with attitudes as well but does some of the practical things that you do can help to shift your attitudes. So um, associating with lowly people is something Paul commends in the 12th chapter of Romans. Um, doing something for someone that uh, you would consider beneath your dignity. Taking the role of a servant uh, as opposed to a, a different role. Um, 
really trying to put the interests of other people ahead of your own. Uh, there are all kinds of ways that we can, we can humble ourselves, that is to lower ourselves uh, in the way we act, and that can have a reciprocal effect uh, on, our, on our soul. So that's, I think, a, you know, just a, a few thoughts. You'll find something helpful in this article. Um, also, if you're interested, um, we have on our website a, um, a lecture that deals with this that could um, give you more in the way of practical guidance. Um, of course, the ideal is to talk with somebody and to identify the areas where you see the struggle and then to develop specific strategies. And if you have a, a pastor or a spiritual director, someone who understands these things, uh, that could be very helpful for you. Um, but ultimately, we need God's help to see it and to know what to do. Um, and he will show us. He's more interested in seeing us humble ourselves than we are to do it. Okay, uh, all the rest of us have it all sorted out. That's good. Well, it's uh, 4.15, we're done. Okay, thanks, Krish. I think we're all done.